Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Brown and Angie Martosio, and we're going to talk about Linda Ronstadt, the subject of a new documentary, which is understandably causing people to reassess her legacy and take a new look at the career of really one of the biggest stars of the 70s who kept making music beyond and is still around and is still talking for the documentary. Talked to Angie recently, and we have on the phone someone very important to her career and someone with a very interesting history overall in music, Peter Asher, her producer and manager, some of the biggest periods of her career. Peter, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So the documentary leaves a lot more to talk about. And I just wanted to go back to the beginning. And I was reading all the old Rolling Stone coverage of you and your work with Linda. You know, you can go back and read the Ben Fong Torres cover story, which I think was her first one. I'd recommend everyone do that. It's, as usual, for Ben Fong Torres, incredibly in-depth. It seems like about half a book. Ben's really good at that stuff. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, Peter, share, if you will, just how you first got involved with Linda, what your first impressions were all of that. Oh, sure. I was in New York and somebody said to me, oh, you have to go down to the bitter end. This girl is singing who's just completely amazing. They said she's got this extraordinary voice. You know, she's a great performer. And they said, you know, she sings barefoot. She wears these really short shorts and she's <laughs> incredibly hot. And it was all true, you know. And then when I met Linda and discovered she's also one of the smartest, most brilliant, most thoughtful women I've ever met in my life, I was totally hooked. And it so happened that we talked at some length and she first asked me if I would help finish the album she was in the middle of, which was uh, Don't Cry Now, because it had got a little bit bogged down. She'd worked with various different producers and various boyfriends had been involved and you know various people had been involved and it was just slightly muddled. So I happily volunteered to do that. I thought she was terrific and I would love to help in any way I could. So I did that first. And then in the course of that, she was also in the process of separating herself from her manager at the time, uh, Herbie Cohen. And so she then asked me, because she knew I was a manager, obviously, because I was managing James Taylor at the time. She asked me if I would be a manager, and I was thrilled to accept the job. So I ended up becoming a manager and producer. And then the next album, after Don't Cry Now, on which I produced some tracks and helped to pull the whole thing together, the first album we did together from beginning to end was the next one, which was when it came out, we called Heart Like a Wheel. And obviously, You're No Good was a very important song as a hit, but also as a little bit of a change in direction for her. She always, I think to this day, describes her as a ballad singer. As well as she sings rock and roll, in my view, I think she's one of the great rock and roll singers of all time. I mean, she's just one of the great singers of all time, in my book, in any field. But yeah, she prefers singing ballads. I think she might have even been happiest when we did those, you know, the albums with Nelson Riddle of classic American songbook ballads. But in general, any of those albums that we did, you can kind of assume that if it's a slow song, it was Linda's idea. And if it was a fast song, it might have been mine. Uh, given her druthers, she would probably have made all slow song albums, I think. Anything she puts her mind to, she sings brilliantly, so she can do anything. It's fascinating because, exactly, because she got so good at belting. Oh, yeah. It, Ridiculous. Insane. I mean, that You Know Good vocal is incredible. Tumbling Dice was incredible. Heat Wave was... She nailed that stuff. And let's hear your no good for a second, if we can. Feeling better because I'm over you. Uh, Peter, we were just talking with David Brown. We were just talking about this on the Hi. way over about about Linda's career and, and that amazing run she had in the seventies and how you know she was like one of the biggest rock stars you know on the planet there for a while. Yes, she was. Um, I, I saw a yes. couple of those Mad Love shows myself, and she was amazing. Then she switched. She basically said, "I don't want to do rock and roll for a while. I want to do operetta." And then 
you know, Mexican music. And, and as a manager, like, well, how did you feel about that? My feeling was she, she'd earned the right to sing whatever she wanted, and I would support her fully in that aim. But I cannot pretend that I was prescient enough or clever enough to know how successful it would be. I mean, that's the astonishing thing. The record company were deeply worried when she said she wanted to do the standards album, which, you know, no one really had done at the time. Though actually, of course, Ringo did some years earlier. But other than that, it was not a common thing. Since Linda, of course, Rod Stewart and a whole bunch of other people did it afterwards. But when she's determined to do that, the way she described it, by the way, was she said, I want to get those songs out of the elevator, which she meant the only place you really heard them was in a kind of Muzak version, you know? No one took them seriously. And she said, they are such beautiful songs. People will love them. We have to do this. You know, she was totally committed. She had to sing it. So I was entirely on her side. One of the things I learned as Linda's manager was when I took her on in the first place, some people were actually saying, oh, she's a bit difficult. You know, she wasn't difficult at all. She just had strong, clear opinions of her own. And some people found that disconcerting. And of course, back in that era, there was an element, undoubtedly, of don't you worry your pretty little head about that. We'll make the decisions for you, which is not appropriate to Linda whatsoever. So once I knew what she wanted to do, I saw my job as to help her do it as well as possible, as successfully as possible, and the way she wanted to do it as much as possible. The record company was terrified. They thought it was going to be the end of her career and she wouldn't sell any copies at all. And of course, that first album with Nelson Riddle sold, I don't know, three or four million and continues to sell and was a huge success. And then when she switched to the Mexican stuff, the Rancheras, Canciones de Mi Padre is the biggest selling foreign language album in American history. So she was right. I trusted her completely and saw myself as her collaborator in an enterprise that we both put together. To go back to the 70s, it's fascinating the documentary to watch her become a rock star. And I am fascinated by this thing that she was so good (laughs) at singing Tumbling Dice, that later at singing Elvis Costello songs is unfairly maligned at the time by rock snob critics apparently but well, including Elvis Costello himself yes well you know Elvis was deeply committed to obnoxiousness at that point he, in his we, public persona we, he, he actually did kind of go well sorry about that I'm sure you understand and I did so I like Elvis very much I think he's a genius and we did have a, a frank discussion about that and he also thanked Linda and me because you know at the time it made him money which he desperately needed so he was grateful and he's a wonderful guy so let's talk about selecting material because a lot of people in a probably sexist way seemed to assume back then that you were picking it all but it really was primarily her and but also a collaboration well, yes and, and exactly. you know she, so no I, it was really irritating because I had to explain it all the time people would assume there was some you know Svengali Trilby trip going on and there wasn't we both chose songs I would say she chose the majority and you know she's really good at it I mean and indeed I later understood that one of the tests I passed you know <laughs> in working with Linda in the very first place which when she played me hot like a wheel and you know the McGarrigal's version and I said oh that's what a great song that's brilliant of course we have to do it and apparently up till that point she'd be getting like oh you know what can you do with a song like that and that's not a hit and you know that kind of stuff and I already knew enough that any suggestion from Linda was worth taking very seriously indeed when she told me about the McGarrigal sisters or Warren Zevon or you know I think I met J.D. Souther through Linda so she knew good songs and good songwriters all along there were the people we both loved like Buddy Holly you know who we both admired enormously. What was at the core of what would draw her to a song? What drew together these very disparate songwriters and songs that she was attracted to? 
Oh, that's really a Linda question. But I, I would say that it's a song that she could believe herself. I mean, she certainly had an ability to take a song and make it sound like she wrote it. So the lyrics would become her lyrics, even though she didn't write them. And I think that was what, you know, she would almost feel, a, I think, a kind of cosmic compulsion to sing a song, certainly with the American songbook ones, you know, someone to watch over me or whatever. She said, I have to sing that song. You know, it would really be like, I will be unfulfilled. I, I can't breathe if I don't get to sing that song the way I want to. And it was that strong. A song would be a message to her that she could then reconvey in her own way, and brilliantly so, and it would become her message. I often wonder, Peter, what's your favorite album of Linda's, of the ones you worked on with her? It might be Hot Like a Wheel, just because it was the first one, and we had such a great time doing it. And from You're No Good, on the one hand, with let's not forget the genius work of Andrew Gold on that record, without which it would not have been what it was. And all that stuff, the instrumental aspect was a definite co-production between Andrew and myself. So that one, and then Hot Like a Wheel, with the first time I worked with the brilliant arranger, David Campbell, who put that string quartet on that song, and that's that, gorgeous, too. So That would know, be I, Beck's I, father I for our listeners. One, I like them all, you know, it's hard to say. What moments stand out in the studio? Because there were a lot of late nights, and it's easy to take it for granted, but watching the documentary, people forget the wonderful way in which records were made in the 70s with musicians in the room and a very organic and human process compared to what people have grown accustomed to. So what stands out? What are some breakthrough moments? Well, that's true, of course, but You're No Good in particular was in a way done in a slightly modern way in the sense that Andrew played most of the instruments on that record and we built it up one layer at a time. And I sympathize very much with the modern way of making records and I love doing it that way. So I've always been into both. I mean, some of them I like Heatwave. I remember this was long before you went habitually used, you know, click tracks or could put things in time or whatever. We recorded a, a hi-hat loop to make the song perfectly in time because I wanted it to be absolutely rock solid so that Linda could just wail over this totally precision, in that sense, modern sounding track. So I'd cut uh, two bars. I cut a long whole reel of Andrew Gold just playing the hi-hat. The chump, 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 So to get the shuffle right, pick the bars I really liked, loop them, and of course, back then, a loop meant a physical loop using mic stands <laughs> and pencils all over the room so that you could run this loop. And then I got a whole reel of multi-track tape with that loop on it. And that's what the band played to. So they were absolutely locked into perfect tempo. So in some sense, I think some of the things we were doing, yes, we took advantage of the fact we had brilliant musicians, amazing players who would invent great stuff to play. But I also was kind of into a somewhat regimented style of production that uh, in some ways oppressed production methods of today. Yeah, it sounds like what you did with Heatwave is almost a proto-disco technique. We should hear that for a second. The collaboration with Dolly Parton and Emmylou Harris was long in the works. Yes. What can you tell us about just how that came together? It's a lovely album. and you know. It came out of discussions between the three of them. I mean, Linda and Emmylou are very much best friends, as you know. So I think they kind of went, how do we ask Dolly about this? And then they did, and she was totally into it. I didn't produce that record because the agreement between the three of them was none of their producers would do it. <laughs> and it was Brian Hearn wouldn't do it, who had produced Emmy and so on. And 
So uh, that's George Massenberg engineered it and put it together and, and, and produced it. So it's a great record. I love it. And they just had such a good time doing it. They all love each other so much and they're such different people, you know. There was always Dolly in her perfect makeup and elegant wigs and dress to the nines. And Linda, who only dresses up for stuff when she has to and comes to the studio totally casual, <laughs> you know, the exact opposite, like she'd rolled out of bed. And yet they became such close friends and it was it was great to watch them working on it. One of the things that I think critics at the time maybe struggled with, given the kind of framework they were working with, is the idea of a singer who didn't write her material, because so much was tied into the singer-songwriter idea. So how much of that was a struggle to, for sort of critical credibility, the expectation that she would write songs as the artist, whereas she clearly, as Jackson Brown, I think, says in the movie, that she was an auteur shaping yep. these songs, you know? Yes, indeed. And she made them her own. I think maybe that affected the critics a bit. Maybe it didn't affect me at all, but you might be right that that's one reason I don't think she ever quite got her due, you know. But one of the interesting things about this movie is that, as you said in your preface, people are to some extent reassessing Linda's genius and realizing just how good she was. I mean, from my point of view, I have no qualms in saying, you know, with all respect to the incredibly wonderful singers with whom I've made records, just as a singer, as an interpreter of songs, Linda is the best singer I've ever worked with in my life. And I love everyone I've worked with, Natalie Merchant or Cher or Diana Ross or even Barney, but I'd vote for Linda. And I don't think any of the people I mentioned would be upset by me doing so if one is forced to make a comparison. It's also hard not to be struck by the sheer power of her voice. Would she overload microphones? Was there, oh, was yeah. there how did that yes. work? Just capturing, especially when she's at the top of her range and really belting, how did that work even on a technical level? We spent some considerable time choosing the right microphone, the right compressor, even the right tape. When we did Pirates of Penzance for the movie version, I ended up doing some research into actual mag stock for the movie because we tried recording Linda's vocal on different uh, magnetic film stock and I persuaded them to use the one that recorded her voice the best. So, yes, her voice is technically very demanding on equipment of all kinds. And uh, we would always spend some considerable time working on that aspect of it to make sure I could get the best vocal recording possible. One thing that's tricky now is looking back at a career that's gone to so many places when you have the early sort of folk rock, country rock stuff, the arena rock, the ballads, and then all the stuff that came after, yep. the country stuff. So where was the core of Linda, or was the core that she could do all these things, if you see what I'm saying? The core is singing. The core is songs that she loves. And, you know, she makes the point in the documentary that all songs she was associated with when she was growing up. Wow. The, that's what she points out always, is that what those songs have in common is that by the time she was 12 or something, she was in love with those kinds of songs, you know. She loved rock and roll. She loved uh, country music. She'd heard it all on the radio. She loved rancheras. She loved the songs her mother loved the best, which was the American songbook songs. So I think the core of Linda is she's a singer and a great singer. And as much as she, she still thinks we, she could have been better and she didn't took her a long time to learn and all that, she's amazing. I mean, I think that's the core of Linda is being one of the best singers in the world. Well, Peter Asher, you have a new book coming out called The, the Beatles from A to Z. And I know you'll be on yes, a serious based on the about radio show I do on the Beatles channel. And thank you very much for being here. And we're going to be talking more about Linda Ronstadt. Angie recently talked to Linda herself. Linda has Parkinson's and can't really sing 
anymore, which he's certainly entirely there and uh, has been doing a bunch of interviews for this documentary, although she is not closely associated with the documentary, right? That's kind of what she conveyed? No, she made that clear to me, too. She's been doing public speaking performances in the last few years, uh, not a ton. And a lot of the audio that you hear in the documentary are those performances being overdubbed. And she was very honest about that. She's like, I haven't had much to do with it. It wasn't my idea. She's extremely modest and she didn't really know why anyone would want to do a documentary on her. But I was very glad that she decided to talk because she rarely gives interviews before this documentary. And what stood out in your conversation? What surprised you? I guess, first of all, besides like her being modest, I mean, she was just very surprised that anyone would want to do a documentary. So when I press questions about her career, she would often just say like, you know, my former life, I keep thinking about it and it's kind of boring to me. So I think these questions are kind of, she's used to answering them by now with all these interviews, but she definitely at first was like, she just doesn't understand why anyone would want to hear about it my sense of her and this is from going back and reading rolling stone really chronicled her very very closely in the 70s she was very much in tune with this sort of mainstream rolling stone vision at the time which was much more linda ronstadt than led zeppelin at the time that was you know throughout the 70s that was kind of the conflict is that you know some of the older writers were more into the uh, sort of mainstream folk rock than what people might imagine it was who don't follow this closely, which is like Led Zeppelin and Queen. No, (laughs) you know, that's what Cameron obviously brought is the willingness to do some of that stuff. But anyway, reading this very close documentation, I mean, I learned more about her, frankly, from Ben Fong Torres' story than from the documentary. But what I got from her is she's a brilliant person who was dubious about fame and showbiz in a really interesting way. She felt like she could really take it or leave it. And that's what I think came across in your conversation with her. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of moments where I would ask. She was mostly wanting to talk about after rock and roll when she was dabbling through all these genres. And if I ever pressed her on anything in terms of like, like, oh, it's 2019. Like, how do you feel about the Me Too movement? And how was it for you as a woman in the 70s? And she was like, well, sexism was everywhere. And she was very clear about that. As good as Ben's story is, it also must be said that he asks every man around her if they thought about sleeping with her, which I found somewhat shocking in today's context. But then also would say that they all treated it as a normal question, as did Linda, which is this just weird. I don't know. Yeah. And her second cover story by Cameron Crow is the infamous like red lingerie cover and even asking her about that she's told this story before but it was really hard for her to be portrayed in that I think even inside the spread is like of her you can vouch for that DB like you've seen that yeah that was pretty striking I saw that when it came out <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was pretty startling in some ways to and see she even told me that Annie Leibovitz brought that outfit and she said I don't wear things like that and she said oh well we'll just try a few and I'll let you pick the photo which obviously did not happen. But she talked about presentation of her as a sex symbol, which happened not just on the cover of Rolling Stone, but on her album covers, which it's really funny. There weren't music videos. So when you talk about the official presentation of the image, it was the album cover was a mm-hmm. much bigger deal. And so it, it was sort of like she would be a sex symbol for the like hour that it took to shoot the album cover and then be back to being herself, which is really interesting. But what else from the conversation stuck out? I asked her questions about the Cub Scout uniform that she performed in, and she told me the entire story of shopping in New York with Nicolette Larson, which I found to be really cool. And we also just discussed the view of like her documentary, and I said, what do you think this will do to your legacy? And she said, I, I haven't the slightest, and just started laughing. Like She was in a really good mood and was really easy to talk to. Yeah, I don't think she cares. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't really care. I think she loved singing, but not anything that came with the singing, and she had no attachment 
to the arena rock fame she was gaining it and that's very clear which is really funny because she was so good at it again but for her it was just one thing among many that she could do and i think that's another thing that's hard for people especially like the rock writers of the 70s to get their head around that rock was like one tiny portion of what a singer might be interested in yeah she definitely suffered from that kind of sexism in journalism back then and as she talked about with peter i think a lot of writers grappled during the singer songwriter era with the fact that she was an interpreter there weren't too many really like that you know and who were selling that many records as well. It's, you know, it's easy to forget how huge she was back then because it's been so long. Yeah, there were female rock stars before her, you know, like Grace Slick and Janis Doplin and so forth. But Linda was more massively popular than any of them. I and mean, she had several platinum albums in a row. And that just wasn't happening at the time. There's even a point in the documentary where Bonnie Raitt compares her to the Beyonce of our time. Like, what are your thoughts on that, David? Well, I think in terms of maybe the ubiquitousness aspect, I guess, I'm not, I wasn't totally sure what she was referring to, but right. maybe in the way that she was the leading pop rock figure of her time at that point. I, I assume that's what Bonnie was referring to. And she's right about that. I mean, unlike, say, Grace or Janis Joplin, who were amazing, of course, but, you know, Linda was kind of an all-conquering force back then. This was someone who had one successful album and hit single after another. She was on the cover of tons of magazines, including things like Time, which didn't do a lot of rock star covers at the time. You know, she really kind of, for a few years there, kind of um, was the number one female rock star of her time. And as a pure solo artist, there was no band that was competing to get the attention. There was no airplane behind her. There was no big brother. Other than the very beginning, the Stoneponies, there was her. And I think that that's significant as well. Right. That was also, I think, part of the problem of the critical response in the sense that, you know, she used like session musicians from L.A. who were great players. Andrew Gold, as Peter mentioned, and people like Danny Korchmar and Wadi Wachtel. I mean, she had these amazing musicians behind her. But again, it was seen as that L.A. rock sound and she wasn't in it. Maybe if she had a band. She would have had a little more cred, but it's which is kind of a ridiculous thing to consider but that was another kind of mark against her in a way she recorded in LA with studio musicians and sang other people's songs and, and you look back at that now and it's like yeah so well <laughs> it's weird in, in rock critic orthodoxy you had to write your own songs unless you were Elvis Presley and then you were excused from it one of the things that the old school rock critic establishment had most trouble dealing with was someone with a very pleasant voice who sang really good songs nicely like the thing which obviously is the thing that you know, average pop consumers have always gravitated to has always been the critics have just never known pre-poptimism, never knew what to do with that other than to sort of heap scorn upon it. I mean, you look at Mariah and Whitney were once totally critically scorned in part because they fell into that category. I mean, of course, there can be an overcorrective to that where they just become uncriticized goddesses. But if you read the criticism of them back and forth, it's like, you know, they were accused of like recording Piffle as if like Mariah and Whitney should have chosen, you know, God knows what to record. Like, like Patti Smith covers. Right, right exactly. <laughs> like at the same time, Linda Ronstadt was literally recording War on Zevon and Elvis Costello songs and helping popularize those artists in some ways and yet being shit on for it. So it does, it does seem like a fast not to turn this into a just, you know, let's roast all the old rock critics, but it is really interesting to look back upon. Yeah, she popularized a lot of songwriters who would not have been heard otherwise. When I mean, Kate and Anne McGarrigal were cult figures at the time, and somebody like Warren Zevon and Carla Bonoff, she recorded three Carla Bonoff songs on a great album called Hasten Down the Wind and kind of did the definitive versions, but also brought people like that into the mainstream. And she would, I think, bring like a Warren Zevon song to Peter and be like, I should record this. Yeah, I mean, you know, that community back then was so tight-knit that people would just kind of 
pop around each other's houses and play songs and things like that. It's kind of amazing to talk to some of those people now and, and know more about that community and, and, and how business-like it was, but also casual. And people just knew each other and would share songs. So it would probably happen that way as well. Let's hear that song, Heart Like a Wheel, if we can. When you bend it, you can't mend it. But my love so, David, I wonder if you could contextualize her further in sort of L.A. rock of the 70s, which must be said is one of your specialties. So just kind of place her in that canon and what her role was and how she was seen by the other musicians and all that kind of thing. Yeah, she was a real pioneer in that whole country rock world. That, and one of the people we don't necessarily immediately associate. You know, her first year, she came out of the, uh, well, she's from Arizona originally, but then moved to L.A. in the mid-70s and was in this group called the Stone Ponies, who had a big hit with Different Drum, of course, the uh, Michael Nesmith song. And uh, they lasted a couple of records, and then she went solo. And when she went solo, it was 1969, and she made a record called uh, Hand Sewn Homegrown. Let's hear a different drum for a second. Travel to the beat Listen. of a different drum. How oh, can you tell by the way I run every time you And you actually asked her about Michael Nesmith. It was one of my final questions because not only am I a diehard Monkees fan, I just honestly wanted to know his opinion on it. He did say he liked it and she was recognizing that but she also said well he made a lot of money right sorry sorry go on yeah <laughs> yeah he's one of many songwriters who probably did really well mm-hmm. uh, linda ronson including elvis you know uh, but she launched her solo career in 69 and if you listen to that first album of hers it's very much in the kind of flying burrito brothers birds kind of country rock wow. honky tonk sound and she was right there in the mix uh, she wasn't writing her own songs and so forth but she was a popularizer of that mix of kind of you know, L.A. meets Nashville sound that was very new and fresh at the time. And she, of course, was an amazing singer back then and took it to a whole new level. Great example of that is Long, Long Time from that period, a great country ballad, which was from her second record, actually, called Silk Purse. And so right from the beginning, she was laying the groundwork for what the music that would come from in the next decade. Sounds like good I think it's interesting that you do hear, and a little bit of sort of just retrospective thinking, but you do hear that Mexican balladry approach in her early stuff. It was there. In the movie, there's a little bit like Jackson Brown's like, I didn't even know she was Mexican, with this slight sort of skepticism, but it really was there. It's not a myth. Like, that was absolutely informed her approach and once you understand it you hear it really differently the vibrato and all that but where did it go from there you know i think where it went from there was just refining that sound as peter said uh into records like don't cry now but taking it in a much more commercial direction in a way you know in a way that it would have hard to uh imagine say graham parsons making records like linda did he was going for a bit more of a raw rootsy kind of sound and she took the foundations of that and added this wide range of songs as we've seen and so it really is something that functioned alongside the Eagles as it literally did. What you just said could obviously directly apply to the Eagles as well. Yeah, and she was kind of the uh, put this, the female version of the Eagles. I mean, they were all... You or know, they were the male version of her since they, they came were, after they, they Exactly. Yeah. Most of them started as her backup band, you right. know, which is another really important part of her story. She always had great taste in musicians, songs and musicians. And there's a great clip in the documentary of her doing a version of Fontella Bass's, uh Rescue Me 
with a little band in a club with, and there's Don Henley on drums and Glenn Fry on guitar. You know, I've heard that song on record for years, but I'd never actually seen a, a film clip of them doing it together. And that's kind of an amazing example of kind of caliber of players she had. And it's also so fascinating that they've all said all along that when they said, we'd like to leave and form the Eagles, she was like, great, go for it. Like you, I've got a different drummer. It's fine. I'll just cover Desperado. It's fine. (laughs) She had just a great string of records, starting I think with I would say maybe with Don't Cry Now, which Peter mentioned earlier. There's a great version of Neil Young's I Believe in You on that, which was done up with like a gospel choir and everything. It's a great version. And she had like a string of four or five records from then on that were not only all hugely successful, but had a lot of great deep cuts on there that people want to explore. Other Kate and Anne McGarrigal songs. Uh, She had a Spanish song on one of those records, uh, an album called Hasten Down the Wind. There's a song called Lo Siento Mi Vida. That was a total precursor to what she would do 10 years or so later. Take that, Jackson Brown. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on that record, she also did a Jimmy Cliff song, of which for some of us, uh, uh, Many Rivers to Cross. For a lot of us, like that was one of our earliest introductions to reggae and to that music. And so she was a real portal to a lot of not just songwriters, but other genres. And of course, back then, a lot of critics would deride her for that because it'd be like, oh, these bland versions of... Jimmy Cliff or whatever, but you know, those are important records because they really did introduce you to a lot of other genres. Let's hear Many Rivers to Cross by Linda Ronstadt. First of all, that's lovely. Second of all, can you imagine, I mean, we were talking about the checks. Can you imagine how wonderful it must have been to be Jimmy Cliff and get the check for being on a 70s Linda Ronstadt album? It's easy to joke about that, but it's a tremendous thing to do. And she had fantastic taste in songs. There's really no denying about it. Look, I mean, her cover of Allison by Elvis Costello, I would say that's the one where I would say, you know, because look, are all critiques of the time wrong? No, of course not. If you listen to Allison, which we will in a second, I think that's important because it does get at, okay, well, here's why if you're a critic, you might be like, she's not really nailing it. Because that's one where it does feel like she kind of missed the point of this song or the arrangement does. There's a lot of like this kind of soft jazz saxophone echoing the lines in this. I, you can't imagine Elvis Costello of the time literally puking when he hears it. Let's hear that just to be fair, if we can. About the way you look, I understand that you were not impressed, but I heard you. I guess the problem is it has like a little bit of like the Bill Murray jazz lounge vibe to it, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's just off. But then right, I would right. say that rather than being emblematic of her approach, I would say it's actually more of an unusual misstep to misfire right. that hard. And it's just probably a case of her recognizing really on this is a really great song, but also not recognizing that in that particular case, not the right singer for it. But, but. There's a funny story behind that too, was when Elvis and the Attractions did that famous show at the Hollywood High in early 78, Linda and Peter Asher and a whole bunch of her crew went to that show to check it out because they heard he was the thing. And, uh, you know, I heard afterwards a lot of them were like, "Uh uh-oh, this is the future. We don't know if we like this. And that was very threatening. But then right after that, Linda started covering his song. So she clearly was not threatened. And she went as far as to make, I think we alluded to this earlier, she made what was seen at the time as like a new wave record or her version thereof. 
Yeah, it was called Mad Love. It came out in 1980 with a cover of her. Suddenly she had short, kind of punky hair. She's in a phone booth on the phone, and the guy who designed that album cover thinks she was on the phone with Jerry Brown, who was her boyfriend <laughs> at the time. But uh, that was an odd record. It was an admirable record, and then I think by that point she'd made four or five albums where everyone had J.D. Souther's song and a rock oldie. There was a kind of a formula that was settling in there, and I think Mad Love shook that up a bit. But it was also kind of her last rock record for a while, and you know, as someone who was around following that of age at the time, it really was shocking when like six months or so later we hear, oh, uh, she's going to be in Pirates of Penzance. She's going to be singing Gilbert and Sullivan (laughs) in Central Park. And you're like, what? And then like two years later, she comes out with the Standards album, the What's New album, and then all these other things came afterwards, the Mexican music, several of those records, and they were kind of moves that no one was really doing back then. I mean, every record was suddenly completely different in a completely different genre. And whether you like the genre or not, you have to give her credit for going for it and always singing it really well and and making really well-made records in that. In a way, it was kind of smart on her part because a lot of her peers from the 70s by the early 80s were kind of floundering. They were suddenly in the MTV new wave era. What do we do? Do we have synthesizers? And Linda was like, oh, forget all that. I'm just going to follow my weird oddball musical passions. Right. That's why there's there's no like, we built this city of Linda Ronson. Transformation within rock era stopped with Mad Love. And then she did other stuff. But we were talking briefly during the break about the idea that she is from a sort of pre-rock tradition where if you're a singer, you sing in all different styles. It changed with the era. And it's what Elvis Presley sometimes imagined himself to be or wanted to be. You know, he thought early on that rock and roll was just going to be like a little part of what he did. And he'd go on to singing like big operatic ballads and all that stuff that actually is like hideous to listen to for the most part. This thing where like, you know, Sinatra did a bunch of different stuff. And if you're a professional, you know, David, you're saying it's like if you're on a variety show, they might want you to sing country. They might want you to sing rock. If you're a professional, you better do it very well, which is what she did. And I think that, again, that's something that confounded people because she was too good at this different stuff, which made people suspicious. Right. She was very facile in lots of different genres, which sometimes worked against her, as, as that version of Allison showed, that she wasn't always meant for everything. But she also was like a pitch-perfect singer, too, which was also something not cool in rock at the time. You were supposed to have a little bit of maybe raspiness or rawness in your voice, and here was someone who was kind of an old-fashioned belter, and I think you know some people couldn't quite handle that either strangely enough. And they felt like, oh, she was like plowing over the emotions and the songs. And occasionally she did. There's a version of Randy Newman's Sail Away where, you know, that's a song about slave ships, you know, and she belts it out. And it's not, you know, the, the subtleties of the song are kind of gone from that. So it didn't always work. But again, you have to give her credit for doing Randy Newman songs before he was a thing. I hate to almost end the episode on that, but let's hear that version if we can. In America, you get Oh boy. <laughs> so, you know, in a long career, there's ups and downs. But I think what's cool is this documentary is reminding people about as much as all this different stuff she did, also her coolest moment where she was like a really badass rock and roll singer and a woman in an era when there weren't enough women doing that. When there were so few women in rock and roll that she said that like if you wanted to assemble a backing band, she said it basically had to be guys. There weren't enough women to assemble, you know, in that scene, which is really striking and, you know, thankfully times have changed. I would almost compare her maybe not so much to Beyonce, Taylor Swift in terms of she had her own squad back 
then. <laughs> but her squad was like people like Emil Harris and Bonnie Raitt and Maria Moldauer and all these other great singers and sometimes songwriters who weren't having the hits and were kind of, you know, up and coming. And Linda, there's a great scene in the movie where Emmylou Harris almost sounds like still in tears by recalling how how distraught she was after Graham Parsons' death and that Linda brought her out to L.A. and introduced her to people and got her life and cure back together. And that, that's the best kind of squad. You know? Yeah, I wish that she and Emmy Lou and Dolly had become like a real band for a while and just made a few albums. That would have been awesome. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. That has been today's show. I'm Brian Hyatt. Thanks to David Brown and Andy Martosio for joining me. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. They truly are appreciated. In the meantime, thanks for listening as always, and we will definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.